A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome back to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with John Richardson, who is the senior consultant with ICIS, focusing primarily on the petrochemical market and polyolefins market in Asia and Middle East. And he brings that perspective as well as a global perspective. Interesting fact, John's been on the, the podcast several times and his most recent episode 102, which is titled China's Aging Demographics and the Future of the Chemical Industry, was according to Spotify, our most shared episode in 2023. So we're gonna see if this episode could become the most shared episode in 2024. We'll find out. John, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you very much. So let's just talk a bit about the reflection on 2023. So we spoke a couple of times, we spoke at the beginning of the year, we spoke mid-year, just talking about some of the challenges going on from where you sit what what was going on in 2023 now that we're at the end of it and can look backwards well, i think victoria it really probably all started in late 2021 it's built up the momentum's built up this year which mm-hmm. was the evergrande moment when you suddenly realized the chinese property bubble had burst which is like 29 percent of gdp and then you got this drip effect of the worsening demographics in china so mm-hmm. i think the the big shock for people in 2023 was there was no big zero COVID, post-zero COVID. I didn't think there would be, to be honest, because I felt that the, the effect of that real estate loss of momentum and the youth unemployment and the geopolitics, we shouldn't forget that, the, the, the increased geopolitical mm. tension to the West, all of those would, would keep consumer confidence very dampened in China. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that. So that's been a shock for people. And then the the consequence of what we talked about before was that back in when all these projects were planned, these all these crackers and polyolefin plants were being planned, people thought that China would grow at six to eight percent a year in terms of polyolefins demand, whereas now we're seeing one to three percent. And when I saw the data originally about how much China dominates global demand, I thought our data was wrong, to be quite frank. But hmm. I checked it out and it's right. And China completely dominates global demand. So you build a project anywhere to serve any market, and obviously an export-focused project in particular, and it's affected by that effective demand growth gap between earlier expectations of what's happening. So that explains why we've got the lowest operating rates on record across the polyolefin hmm. business globally. Well, and there's no doubt that we overbuilt I think we probably even overbuilt, even if you assumed a 6% growth rate in China, would you yeah. say? Yeah. Well, actually, look at polypropylene, surprisingly, no, because I modeled it. So I assumed that we would see 6 to 8% growth. I, okay, 8%. I pushed it uh, with 8%. And 
by 2028, we had global reinvestment conditions for polypropylene, assuming 8% hmm. growth. 6% of course. Do you think that's growth. still true? Absolutely not. <laughs> we're now going to see 1% to 3% polypropylene growth, same with polyethylene. We might even see some minus years of growth going forward, possibly. And we're seeing an extended trough of very low operating rates. And we're at the point now where the less competitive, the problem that we face is the really less competitive producers in South Korea, Singapore, even Thailand, perhaps, Taiwan and Japan and Europe having to look really hard at their assets. Obviously, those directly exposed to China, I can talk about Europe in a minute, but those exposed to China directly, the South Koreans and Singapore, etc., have a huge problem because of rising Chinese self-sufficiency as well. Um, yeah. China keeps building out this capacity and the net imports are going down and the demand growth is weak. And it's really, for the South Koreans, it really is a, a play almost entirely on Chinese markets. So what do they do next? Yeah. Let's just talk about what we're looking at going into 24 and beyond. So you see a protracted trough. Is that what you're saying? And how long and how protracted? That's the billion dollar question. Yeah. I hate to be a Jeremiah, especially near Christmas, but the problem is that from 20 to 26 onwards, we've got even more capacity, right? Which counts. Particularly. Well, China and the Middle East and the US. So you think, what's going on here? And it's really, I mean, Aramco, Saudi Arabia faces this challenge of declining crude oil demand, right? electrification traffic. I believe the IEA figures, we're, we're going to see a steep decline in crude oil demand for the next 10, 15 years. Obviously, the number one asset for Saudi Arabia is crude oil, national asset. Saudi Aramco are turning more of the oil into chemicals, crude oil to chemical. Crude oil to chemicals is a group of new technologies different from the earlier work on increasing chemical feedstock from refineries. This is a step change. So the crude oil to chemicals can go from, say, 30% of refinery output to chemical feedstock to 45%. And the ultimate aim wow. by Aramco is to get to 70 to 80%. They're not there yet. But they're investing in these giant crude oil to chemical projects in the Middle East and in China because they want to make sure they consume the oil. And these are mm. huge. So is this about economies of scale or is it more about cheap feedstock consumption? Both. I think it's the alternative value of leaving the crude in the ground for good. What does that mean? Now, obviously, the alternative value is zero if you can't exploit it. Building these yeah. giant chemical plants that are super efficient, making also lots of basols and low sulfur diesel and other fuels as well. So you still get quite high output of fuels. So these giant complexes and also lower carbon, which is what they say because of carbon capture and storage. So they're saying that in a world where we're seeing a higher price on carbon, particularly in Europe, Europe's going to thinking of introducing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, applying yeah. to organic chemicals and polymers by 2030. So that's in effect, you're going to pay a higher import tariff if you have a high carbon output, your, your scope one and two emissions. So if Aramco can demonstrate that they're lower carbon, they can export to Europe very competitively. Yeah. So effectively what's happening is if I can maybe reframe it a little bit, the if and if we maybe dial the circle around Europe and the relationship between Middle East and Europe and China and Europe is Europe has set some very high environmental standards. So they're making it less cost effective to produce there. Saudi Arabia and China 
are coming in with crude to chemicals that basically they're using a zero feedstock cost. In effect. And then they're getting tax benefits to import into China on the premise of being a more carbon efficient manufacturing. Is that right? It sort of applies to Europe eventually. Okay. If the C band comes in, which we don't know if it will, but you know, the, the EU might bring it in before 2030. Clearly, that's the objective for yeah. Europe. Don't think that applies to China yet. But actually, sorry, you're right. In terms of domestic expansion, they want to be lower carbon, right? Mm-hmm. So they're looking at the BSF project, which is a different group of chemicals we're not covering. Is it will be run entirely on renewable energy, right? It's all the oxo-alcohols that I don't cover. But that's certainly objective within China. So, yes, that's right, within China. So that Aramco and BSF and Shell, et cetera, can help with the lower carbon agenda in China. Yeah. Um, I think the other side to this as well, which is quite shocking from an industry perspective, is that the standard view is China will still be a major importer of parazylene, MEG, polyethylene, polypropylene by 2030. But... The, the argument is, that the theory out there, and of course we don't know if it's true, is under the 15th five-year plan, which is 2026 to 2030, they want to get to pretty much balanced positions in all these products by 2030. China does. Yeah, if that were to happen, then what does South Korea do? What does Singapore do? They've lost their main export market. And of course it won't happen mm. immediately. So you start doing the math about what it would mean. And I did it for, I did it for HTP for South Korea. Assuming that they lost all their exports to China and also to Europe, assuming that they can't compete in terms of cost of carbon and scale, the effective HDP operating rate in Korea goes down to 23% by 2030. (laughs) Which is inoperable at that point. Obviously, you talk about shutdowns. You talk about shutdowns long before we get to that point. So that's how serious it is because you can assume that if they build out this capacity, this CTO, this COTC capacity, they will get into Europe at very competitive prices. That squeezes, as I said, the South Koreans out of Europe. You can assume that Southeast Asia, as the second biggest net import market in the world, or third, I think, behind Europe and China, becomes a real battleground, right? So then mm-hmm. South Korea struggles in Southeast Asia against all this Middle East stuff. Right. Now, this is an extreme scenario, Victoria. I'm saying it goes from where it is this year to zero by 2030. Yeah, that's pretty fast. Yeah, that's probably it's an exaggerated scenario, but it's explaining that the pressures that, that could take longer than that, that this is South Korea's got to reinvent itself and think what it does next. So what are the trends that you are monitoring? So I know you've talked a lot about a declining declining Chinese demand, right? So we've gone from an environment where there was six to 8% annual growth to, so it's maybe not declining demand, but it's declining growth, right? So going from six to 8% growth down to one to 3% growth per annum. So what is it that you're watching? What trends should, are you watching? What trends should we be watching as we wonder about whether is China going to recover its growth? Is it not going to recover its growth? How is this going to could play out. What are the tea leaves and the trends that you're feeding into your assumptions and your point of view? I think in terms of China, the China's economy, I think there's a great piece by a guy called Michael Pettis um, that put on the blog the other day and rock in a hard place, right? Because the mm-hmm. investment-led growth model, I mean, what's happened is since the collapse of real estate, China's put more money into manufacturing capacity, including chemicals, of course. And 
in order for them to carry on with investment and growth, the rest of the world has to cut back on investment in manufacturing by one percentage yeah. point. Now, is that going to happen mm. in the EU and the US and India? No, because of well, the Inflation Reduction Act, maybe politics. Maybe in the EU, it, honestly, from where I sit, it feels like the EU doesn't want to invest in itself anymore. That's certainly what the policies are driving. Could make room, but then China starts exporting deflation in effect. If they cannot go the investment-led route, right, which is deflationary, would also increase the, the debt ratio to GDP to perhaps an unsustainable level. That's another argument. They've got to try and raise domestic consumption by 6 to 7% per year. Yeah. But no country in the history of the world in this stage of economic development has managed that kind of consumption growth. Before the pandemic, it was growing at 4%. You've got an aging population. You've got issues with government financing to pay for it. You've got the fact that if you transferred wealth from businesses to homes, you undermine export competitiveness because you'd be raising wages, right? So yeah. I think it's a rock and a hard place. So I think you've got to accept China will grow, but a lower lower growth rate than we should. How, how can China continue to afford investment? Given, as you say, the financial woes were tied to real estate, the declining population. I've seen some interesting things. If you recall earlier this year, we talked a lot, not just you and I, but just the media was talking a lot about unemployment for youth or young adult unemployment, right? College grads couldn't find jobs. And now it's gone silent, which is also notable. And yet I know that there's this long-term strategy to get to a uh, net zero right? So balanced import perspective or self-sufficiency. Where's the money coming from? How are they affording this? And is it realistic? Yeah. And that's, if they want, if they want to hit four to 5% growth and Jinping says need 4.7% growth by 20, every year to 2035 to double the size of the economy, mm. the government could just create, keep creating more debt, right? Building more manufacturing capacity. What's the return on that debt right now? It's a closed account. It's not, you say China hasn't got a fully convertible currency, so you won't get something like the global financial crisis, apparently. It's a closed economy. So in theory, it could just keep creating more debt, get the policy banks to lend more money. But of mm -hmm. course, the return on investment is getting weaker and weaker. And then your problem is you're yeah. exporting into a world that says we don't want these exports, right? So you get more trade protectionism pushing back potentially or, or and or you get deflation as you flood the world with stuff. So, yeah, it's very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And the other route, as I said, is to grow consumption in, in a world where you have high youth and employment, lack of confidence in the economy, aging population, people sh saving more for pension health care when you have very poor pension health care coverage. So I think they're stuck, really. To your point, though, it could be they don't reach petrochemical self-sufficiency because it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm. So we don't see this big build-out. We see a slowdown in, and therefore there's more um, imports. There's still a strong import market by 2030, right. which is certainly a scenario to consider. But I think more broadly, looking globally, I think we should talk about the ethane crackers as well, right? So we've talked about yeah. CO2 a lot, but there's a lot of ethane crackers being built in, in Qatar, in Abu Dhabi, in the US and in Canada, right? And that's a lot of capacity, again, by the oil and gas majors, isn't it? And I think there's a scenario where we end up with a, a petrochemical industry dominated by the super majors, right? 
call them the super majors, oil and gas companies. Fewer companies dominate. And then what happens to the older assets, the smaller assets, the ones exposed to China, et cetera? Well, do they stumble right. on at very low operating rates for many years or do they shut down en masse? Now, shutting down mm. is really hard, isn't it? Yeah. You've got environment to clean up, pensions. Yeah. And then there's, depending on how you run these economic scenarios, at times you say it's just, if they're, let's just say, paid for and depreciated, it's just cheaper to run them at cost. Yeah. And, and you might be looking at rolling Which is one of the things I think, I feel like we've seen, we've not seen a lot of shutdowns yeah. because these assets are fully depreciated. They may not be truly economical, but when it's cheap to operate and your the costs that you have to cover are low, you just keep running. Exactly. You're exactly right. We've never seen these big wave of shutdowns. And also, it might be to keep yeah. the upstream refinery going as well. Where, do you, where else do you sell naphtha in an in a, in a inland refinery chemical plant in Europe? Where else do you sell your naphtha? So therefore, you can't operate your refinery. And then you've lost your local fuels self-sufficiency. And in Korea, you have the chable that back these companies are part of huge industrial conglomerates. And so it's not straightforward. So I think but probably a more likely scenario is they stumble on under the super majors outcome. But I think there's another scenario, deglobalization. These are two extremes. Right. right. And we could be ending up. Yeah, the extreme is globalization, full globalization. Yeah. And, and the other one is we end up with the EU saying, hold on, every one job upstream equals around 10, a maximum of 10 downstream. Right. So we close. Do they recognize this? I think they should. I know they That'd should. Yeah, and they say we need to adjust the whole carbon mechanism, the trading system. We need to support local chemical industry in decarbonisation. We need to recognise that we need to keep our local industries because of the employment reason. And there's another factor this, Victoria, recycling, right? We know that's a niche business, but it's an important business, right? Hugely important. And the problem is the, clap, the collapse of virgin prices has made recycling very difficult. Give me an example in Australia that the, the MRFs, the guys who sort the plastic waste process yeah. to hand it out to the recyclers. They were getting paid around 150 barrels a bale, I think, last year, right? Now they're having to pay the recyclers $30 about to take the bales away <laughs> because yeah. of the collapse of the virgin prices. Now, yeah. the merch are still operating because they get a lot of money from the deposit returns beams for bottles, so they still make money, right? But for the, the plastic bales, they're losing money. It's a conundrum, John. So I've talked to a yeah. number of people across the value chain on this. Consumer products companies, for instance, have all set these targets about the amount, the quantities of recycled material or recyclable material, which is an interesting thing when you just lump it together. But if you're targeting a recycled content, they have targets but they're not willing necessarily to pay for them. There's not enough recycled feedstock to support that. And as I, as I shared with you earlier, I think we can have these re municipal recycling systems, the MRFs as you talk about it, but it's still human behavior that requires to make the effort to recycle. You made a very good point. You know, I, thought about it. I yeah, certainly I mean, know many people that don't recycle, yeah, yeah, yeah. even though it's easy. We have in our, my communities, my community, other communities around Houston, most of us have curbside recycling. All you have to do is throw it in a different bin and people don't do it. 
And there's no, as you say, if the targets are being missed, if recyclers are shutting down, if it's not economic, yeah. then where is yeah. the confidence in the public? And without the public support, it's not going to work. It's a very yeah. good point. And, and with this plastics treaty, which is obviously still under negotiations, got the plastics treaty under negotiation, we're just at the tail end of COP28 or COP28, whatever you want to call it, which I think has maybe not produced the results people had hoped. There seems to be, but certainly with the plastics treaty, there's a desire to put the burden of reuse and recycling on the resin producer, which is a bit of a conundrum because it's they're not the ones that can influence. They have an influence on recycling, making sure that something is able to be recycled. But the physical act of recycling is on a consumer basis. Very good point. And also the brand owners as well. Because, and the um, brand owners. Yeah. If, if you're a brand owner, you know, you've got good margins already. You're not going to pay more for recycled material. You, you're having to pay more at the moment. But that's the pressure. And you've got the virgin price that's going to be cheap for a long time. So it's a disincentive, isn't it? Um, right. So you've got to get the, the policy levers right to incentivize everybody mm. up and down the value chain, including, of course, as you say, which I hadn't thought about, the, uh, the actual people doing the initial recycling in the public. And it, mm. I think if you want a thriving recycle business in Europe and in Australia and elsewhere in the developed world we're talking, you've got to think about how we change the policy levers to protect the industry from a flood of virgin polymer. And then, of course, you go back to Europe, which has got a big, well, Australia's got a very small virgin industry, but that's still important in Australia. We've got a virgin industry mm. here, which will be under a lot of threat. But Europe's got a huge virgin industry. We need to support that virgin industry as well. So I think deglobalization, if the policymakers wake up, is a pretty likely outcome. Well, yeah. and and to be fair, the other thing that deglobalization does is, I guess, if, and theoretically at least, it reduces type three emissions, which is where a lot of the targets yes. are because of the emissions, the cost of transportation. So you're transporting things long distance. Mm. There's a lot of emissions tied to logistics. How do you know as well? I mean, life cycle analysis, if it's a chemical plant in the US and Middle East, taking oil and gas out of the ground, fugitive methane emissions, as they say, how do you know from the gas well to the polyethylene pellet delivered into a converter, what is the true emissions versus a local supply chain that perhaps you can monitor better? Yeah, I don't know. That's the billion dollar know. question. I, th I think people are waiting still as well for common standards to help define yes. that measurement. Yes, I think common. So we're, we're in a period of, of flux and transformation. There's no doubt about it, John. It's a new landscape. I think it's not, we're not returned to business as usual. As I said, I'm leaning a bit more towards deglobalization, but come back in a month and may have changed my mind, but it, it depends on the politicians. Yeah. Yeah. Does deglobalization go along with smaller asset sizes? So if you look at the trend that we've been on for the past well, 20 plus years, the size of the crackers, the size of the polyolefins units, the size of everything has just gotten massive. And a lot of it's this view of economies of sale, a part of its ego, right? And bragging rights. Does deglobalization imply a shift to smaller units? Very good question. I think it... It would imply that some of the mega units I've been talking about won't get built. So the some of the absolutely giant 
COTC plants may not be as viable. Right. Although, of course, the, it's again, it's using oil, is it? It will be left in the ground, so it may still happen yeah. anyway. Projects might get delayed, ethane and oil-based projects. I think it could give more life to smaller, older units, right? Mm. So, yes, I think the answer is yes, because basically the, 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 you have project cancellations and delays for the ever bigger unit, right? right it, because, you know, which are fundamentally dependent on exports and going yes. to the biggest markets. Yeah. So, so sort of, when, I, when I started this, I think back in 1998, Will's Grove Cracker was what? 700,000, 800,000 tons, something like probably, that. Probably, yeah. Probably, yeah, I can't remember. But yeah. now it's, what is it, 1.5, 1. 1.6? 1. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. we stop there, that's the ceiling. We don't go any higher. And you, you get all these smaller local assets that thrive, and gradually, over time, you get recycling, getting more. But that's going to take a long time, isn't it? Really? Yeah. So I think that's a good makes me wonder if there's lessons that we can learn from other industries. Uh I don't know. What pops into my head at the moment is, for instance, the steel industry that went from mega units down to more, oh, to smaller, okay. more nimble units. Is, is there a model there that yeah. that we should be looking at? Is there a model in refining where mm. we actually have quite a blend of mega sized refineries as well as smaller focused refineries? And I think some of the investment tends to be in smaller refineries these days versus oversized ones. The carbon issue, if you've got sustainable aviation fuel eventually, people talk about that, you've, you've got electrification of transport, but you've still got need for some refinery products, maybe biorefineries, cooking oil to make into SAF <laughs> on a scale, you hydrogenate it and everything yeah. we've been talking about in Australia. And maybe that creates more viability for those small oil refineries around the carbon story. You don't have to have some mega Middle East refinery, because I know in Australia we've got two refineries left. And the one in Victoria has got great plans around SAF and sustainability. Does that give it a niche? Maybe. And it's got, right. got a polypropylene plant downstream. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, we talk about just this whole landscape and how it's shifting. And there's a lot of uncertainty, although the way it's playing out, it's, it seems directionally it's moving to... Uh, I don't know, longer term trough, certainly in polyolefins, this shift to crude to chemicals, demographic challenges, et cetera. You talk to a lot of different companies, different leaders. What are the most effective companies or leading companies? So the leaders and the leading companies, what are they doing to respond to and to thrive in this business environment? What are you seeing from the leaders? If you can't beat them, join them. So you have people basically saying China is going to get self-sufficient. So you've got BSF, you've got, you know, Shell and Exxon investing yeah. heavily in China and, of course, Aramco. So if that's your play and you think that's the right thing to do, when it's very sensitive around Europe, obviously, what happens next in Europe with the high energy costs, mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense, right? From the giant oil and gas majors, we've got Aramco, converting oil into chemicals but i do wonder about the others i don't know i'm just purely speculating now is that yeah. the right policy because then you can change more oil into chemicals that would make sense i really think it depends on who, who i'm not i'm going to hedge this one because basically the strategy depends on where you see the world ending between deglobalization and <laughs> super majors and the winners will be the ones who get that right so will it be the small local companies who turn to biorefineries and recycling and 
recognize that the EU is going to be more of a protected market and they survive and thrive? Or is it the giant companies that relocate to China or and or end up dominating global export flows? I'm not I'm not giving you an answer here, but I think that no, you're really not. so you're gonna tell me you tell us to all just stay tuned. I think that's it. I'm not yeah. uh, probably maybe a mixture of both that in certain regions the, the niche local company does really well with the right regulatory framework. But if you're only a big international player, there'll be enough international room for you to be a mega exporter of really cheap petrochemicals and also and or also support China's self sufficiency. So there's three strands there, isn't there? There sure is. Well, um, I think we're in for another roller coaster. Certainly are. Yeah, and a ride uh, for 2024 and into 2025. I think no recovery in 2024, I'm afraid. I hope I'm wrong. You don't think so? Some people are predicting recovery by end of the year. You don't see that? Hard to see. Yeah. Okay. What has to change for us to see a recovery in 2024? Again, we talk about closing assets down, which is really hard. Mm. You end up running your assets really low for a long time, which seems quite likely. Because yeah. China ain't going to suddenly pull all this demand in. It can't. Mm. Right? So what changes? Yes, I think the rest of the world's okay in terms of hopefully we got on top of inflation. The US will be all right, I think. Yeah. Yours is recession-proof. <laughs> it's amazing. EU should be all right. But it's the fact that China dominates global demand. This is the problem, right? What's the upside for China? And because of the overcapacity, either you shut it down or you run it low. And to shut it down, they're going to run it low. To get to the higher yeah, to get to higher operating rates requires major shutdowns, and I don't think we're going to see that. Yeah. All right. If it if we weren't so unbalanced, and if Europe and the US and the rest of the developing world consume more of demand, it's the fact that China dominates global demand. That's the problem. Right. We've come to rely on China. The world has yeah. come to rely on China. Exactly. To, so what, to buy resin and produce all kinds of plastic stuff. India is a fantastic story. India has been. Yeah. But it's tiny compared with China. That's the problem. Yeah. The rest of the developing world is small compared to China. So that can't really lift operating rates without major plant closures. And we're okay. not going to see that. Yeah. So I think, I actually think that we're going to start... Oh. We're starting to see it. Will we see it in polyolefins? Will we silly see it in other places we need to? There's certainly been some rationalization in 2023, mm -hmm. right? At, across various companies. And my projection is that we're going to see more. That could mean by the end of the year, we see a big, an uptick in operating rates. That was a scenario thing, yeah. Okay. So watch that closely. We'll see. Stay tuned. All right, John, as always, this was good. And it's always an interesting conversation. I know that you shared a deck with me. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to post this and share this with folks. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Idea. So that'll be available on the show notes and on the website and elsewhere if people want it. Thank you for joining us today on The Chemical Show, John. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Likewise. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep listening, keep following, keep sharing, and we will talk again soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.